Thanks for tuning in to Women in Product Marketing. I'm your host, Mary Sheehan with Adobe. For those of you that are new to the pod, we explore the world of product marketing through the lens of the women who run it at some of the fastest growing technology companies in the world. Shout out to our sponsor, Clue. You're losing 30% of your deals to your competitors. Not cool. That competitive revenue gap is costing your business millions of dollars. So how do you tip the scale in your favor? Clue's competitive enablement platform makes it simple for product marketers and compete pros to give their revenue teams the exact right intel at the exact right time. Positioning, messaging, objection handling, and FUD, Clue shares real-time competitive insights in the places your reps already live. It makes it easy for them to contribute insights from the field. All right, let's do this. Hello and welcome back to Women in Product Marketing. I'm thrilled today to get the chance to connect with Sherry Wynn, the Director of Product Marketing for SMB at Indeed. Sherry has a diverse background working at companies like Target and Bazaar Voice, as well as owning her own corporate wellness company. She recently did a Sharebird AMA on customer research, so we'll be diving into that and a few other hot topics today. Welcome to Women in Product Marketing, Sherry. Thank you, Mary. Thanks so much for having me. So happy you're here. All right, let's start with our question for season five, which is, could you share a time when you failed at something and what did you learn? Okay, this is a big one. So take a seat. <laughs> In 2016, I was pretty new to the product marketing role, my first role in product marketing. And at the time, I was at a 50-person tech startup here in Austin, Texas. I was on a team of three marketers. So needless to say, we all wore many hats. I also happened to be six months postpartum. And I was trying to find my groove at work while juggling home life as a new mom. To set the scene, my boss was out on vacation and I was responsible for finalizing a product sheet that we were going to print and send with our sales team to New York for the big NRF conference, National Retail Federation. The day of the final reviews of the one cheater, my daughter got sick. So I rushed out of work to go to daycare and take her home. She had a fever. She was super fussy. And I we're not good at multitasking as humans, but in that moment, that was all I could focus on. So everything else went to the wayside. And I was actually starting to feel pretty bad myself, just like physically. It was all a blur. And I remember missing the deadline and I didn't even realize it until I walked into work the next day. My boss returned from vacation. She was pretty worried about me, but also just concerned about why I'd missed the deadline. And when she asked me what happened, I just burst into tears. I would could say that's like, one of my most unprofessional moments, but also my most human and real moments. And I learned so many things from that experience. Based on the way she responded to me, I learned what empathy and true leadership looks like. She was not a mom at the time. And I learned that I needed to ask for help. I also learned that working motherhood is really impossible based on these outdated standards of what a quote unquote ideal worker is. And I also realized after the fact that I badly needed therapy, but I wouldn't discover that until a whole year later. And suffice it to say, it's really helped me since. That's so wonderful. Well, thank you so much for sharing that story. And my heart just hurts hearing about it and your poor daughter. And I'm so glad you made the right decision. And back in 2016, I don't think there were a lot of conversations happening around working parents, working moms, and the mental health associated with it. So 
that must have been such an overwhelming moment. And even today, it's so hard, as you know, but thank you for sharing that. And I'm so happy that you were able to take some proactive steps after that point as well. But that sounds like a major lesson learned. And is it something that you'd say has shaped your leadership moving forward as well? Yes, absolutely. I ended up going on to found the Parents and Caregivers Inclusion Resource Group at Indeed. And I do feel like when I stepped into the role of a first-time manager as a product marketer, I approached it with so much empathy and so much proactiveness around having discussions about work and life with my team. They're all women. And so I think it's a very important expectation to set from the beginning that we are whole people and work is one facet of our lives. I will also say that debacle was fine because what ended up happening is we finished the one sheeter. We sent them the copy to print from FedEx there and everything was okay. (laughs) So in the end, there really is no big, like when you say works on fire, it really isn't like life still has to happen. Right. So in the end, it was fine. Wow. The perspective is so meaningful too. (laughs) Like we're talking about a product one sheet here or my daughter's health. So I'm glad you were able to make that right decision. And look, it all worked out in the end. Just maybe had to pay a little extra for FedEx, but it's okay. <laughs> worth it. <laughs> worth it. Totally worth it. All right. Well, I'd love to hear more about your role at Indeed. Yes. I am a director of product marketing. I'm on the SMB team at Indeed. At Indeed, our mission is to help people get jobs. It resonates with me. I talk to people on the phone all the time, helping them look for jobs on Indeed, apply to jobs, improve their resumes. My team at Indeed specifically helps small businesses meet their hiring goals and create a better world of work. I lead a team of curious, fun, and empathetic product marketers, and they all happen to be women of color, which I am myself. I'm an Asian woman and mom. My team is responsible for insights, messaging, go-to-market strategy, and we partner with our product teams on testing and iteration to inform our roadmap. I mentioned earlier that I also founded Indeed's Parents and Caregivers Inclusion Resource Group in 2020, which is a nod to that failure story I shared, but it sparked a much needed change in me that basically I needed to be the change that I wish to see. I need to be the leader, the leaders I wish I had, and I needed to create a better world of work for all the people around me. And I felt that I could do that at Indeed and also use the platform of Indeed to do it on a more global scale. That's amazing. Indeed, such a well-loved brand, something I've used personally. I know that there's a lot of people out there that might be looking for a job right now. Is there anything that you would share from your experience working there that can help a candidate potentially stand out? Yeah, I empathize with everyone impacted by layoffs over the last year. I think it's been really tough and challenging. I do think there's hope because this is a time where people really dig deep. And my husband actually just was laid off and found a job. He just started a new job yesterday. And so what I'll say about going through that type of adversity, oh, and I've been laid off twice as well, is that it makes you really sit and think about what you want. One of the big changes for me when I was approaching the second layoff versus the first is that as a mom with a one-year-old, I was really choosy about the types of companies I was looking for. I used Indeed's company pages where you can search to see the types of culture that a company will put out there. You can see employee reviews. Our sister company, Glassdoor, also provides the same. You can look and see what companies have parental leave policies flexible schedules, remote work. 
things that would be relevant to you and what you're searching for. And I say that's a really good place to start to see what culture you're looking for. When it comes to product marketers specifically, I'm still a believer in the cover letter as a way to stand out, as well as finding ways in your resume, especially in the summary, to lead with who you are and not just what you do, right? It's not about what do you do? It's about like, who are you at your core? That's what I look for when I hire. And I look for people with skills that could get the job done versus experience. So I've recently hired my entire team. I pulled from people with different backgrounds, backgrounds in PR, backgrounds in client success, backgrounds in going to market in a new country. I see a lot of translatable skills in all of these different facets of work they did that was not necessarily tied to product marketing specifically. I see a resilience in them, adaptability, flexibility. So I would say find ways to pull in all the skills and all the facets of your life that make you who you are. That's what will make you stand out. That's such great advice. And I love that packaging advice that you're giving for product marketers. And we talked about that on the show a few times before, which is For those that haven't been product marketers yet, how can you showcase that your experience to this point has actually been a lot of what product marketing really encompasses? So get a good understanding of what that product marketing role is and find the ways to tie and connect it if you're trying to get into that new product marketing role for the first time. But that's beautiful. Be your authentic self everywhere, even on your resume. (laughs) Yeah. As a very specific example for myself, I started in client success. And I will tell that story day in and day out about my ability to affect the roadmap using the voice of the customer, because Mm -hmm. I feel like that's what makes me a good product marketer is I have that empathy and I used to be on the front lines. So I think those translatable skills really help. That's awesome. So the cover letter, let's make sure that we all have a good understanding of what you mean by cover letter. Is it something that you would do generally to all companies or something that you would tailor to a specific company? I would definitely tailor it to specific companies. I will have researched the company. I will have even tried to figure out who the hiring manager is and put their name on it and make sure it's tailored. I'll say this. I always have a cover letter that I can modify and something I'm not even above going onto LinkedIn and reaching out to the hiring manager with a message that says, I dropped my resume with your recruiter or into your system but here's why I'm a good fit for the job and I'll attach the cover letter there. So talk about ways to stand out. Like as a product marketer, we're looking for creativity and all-star game. I think that's great. Yeah. As a hiring manager, not one currently, but have been many times over my career. I think that you're just getting so many resumes and so many inputs. So if anyone could stand out, whether it's a connection on LinkedIn or anything like that, that really goes a long way. So great advice. All right. So we have a lot to talk about today, but I wanted to make sure we chatted about your experience starting a product marketing team from the ground up, something that is a really big hurdle to overcome first time manager and jumping from individual contributor, product marketer to actually running that team. So would you say there is a framework that you would espouse at this point now having done it, or how do you approach us building and scaling that PMM team? Yeah, I will say to start, it's understanding where your product is on the adoption curve and your current market penetration and then your business strategy. So at a high level with Indeed, I feel we are an established company. 
we have high adoption, we have a ton of customers, we have very deep market penetration as a market leader, and we're looking to expand our total addressable market. So it's a very specific goal and a very specific place we are in our product life cycle. When I was at the startup, we had expertise in retail, but we didn't have a ton of customers. We also didn't have deep market penetration. We were looking for the next adjacent industry to expand into that was as similar to retail as possible with kind of this land and expand model, right? Get bigger, get deeper penetration, going to the next adjacent industry. And so a very different strategy there. That will help you decide what your goals are, how to focus, and how to be the best partner to product. Then I would organize your product marketing team by either product area, vertical or industry, or even audience based on those business goals. At Indeed, there was a time where we were looking to expand into enterprise because we had so many small and medium businesses. So we had a whole effort geared towards that audience specifically and a team of product marketers around building solutions for that audience. So just to give some examples, it even changes over time. I don't think that's always the case and you move and evolve as the business strategy needs. The other thing I do from the beginning is I take the product marketing framework and do a gap assessment. Identify all the things that we're currently working on or not working on. What is the highest importance and where's our assessment of if we are working on it, how well that's going. That kind of shows you what gaps there are across the business and where product marketing can fill. For example, if you're going into a brand new market, you are trying to understand how you differentiate from the competition, but you're not doing competitive analysis, that should be highlighted as a big gap because it should come across as very important based on where you are in your product lifecycle and what is not being done that deserves focus. So that'll help you focus and then prioritize. The other thing is very important from the get-go is to interview stakeholders around you those in sales, those in product, if you have additional marketing teams, what do they need? Where are their gaps to be filled? Where is their work to be done? Focus there as well. I think those stakeholder interviews can be very eye-opening and I'll shape how you have to assert what is product marketing? How can we be of value from the beginning? I think that shapes the ability to come up with your remit, your charter, what you're working on and be able to roadshow that out to those teams as well. So that's a little bit of what I would do up front. And it basically sounds like how you would prepare a go-to-market strategy, mm -hmm. understand your landscape, get some insights and go from there. I love that. I'm taking notes. I feel like this is such a good way to start if you're thinking about how to organize or reorganize your team. I love that you brought up thinking about where you are on that adoption curve. I think that's so important. It's completely different if you're at a startup in a new market versus a mature company. And then also sort of the market penetration. It depends on what your business goals are, right? Like the vertical focus or the audience focus, et cetera. But I think that's such a great framework to thinking about it and love everything that you mentioned there. So no notes. You're great. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah, you heard it here. Well, one thing we talked about, and I feel like we've been bonding over email and bonding in the pre-show is really about working parenthood. And obviously you talked about this in the beginning of our show here, but I think that you brought up a really good point, which is that as working moms, we have kind of conflicting roles. We're trying to be mom mode in the morning and in the afternoon, and sometimes in the middle of the day when you have a sick kid. And how do you have both of those identities in mind at the same time? More importantly, probably for your employer, how do you actually message your needs? So 
I'd love to hear a little bit about how you've approached this outside of the example that you shared earlier. Yeah, such a good conversation. And I think we need more of it. You mentioned already like the ideal worker established from the days of factories and assembly lines, right? Butts and seats, productivity and efficiency is the goal. We think today about, especially in product marketing, knowledge workers, the ability to be remote, your job is not relying on you being in person and how a lot of us as working moms have two full-time jobs and there's no set end hours for parenthood and there may be for work, right? So it is inherently in conflict. I like to strive for work-life harmony. For me, that means it's not a balance or a trade-off between the two, but a melding together. I think that transparency and directly asking for what you need, as well as giving visibility, are the most important foundations to this work-life harmony. For me, identifying ways of working when I'm at home that are going to help me be productive and also not stressed, content, and satisfied, there's a couple things that have to come together for me. I need to be very clear about what is expected of me in my role, macro level, where I am in my career, and day-to-day micro level about what's upcoming, what's a deliverable, what's a deadline, what's important, and is it really important? I actually ask those hard questions. And then I have to get really clear with myself about what makes me thrive, what are my needs, My needs in my household are basic needs. Keep up with the laundry, make sure the place is clean enough because I'm working from home where my mind doesn't feel cluttered. So I will listen to an all hands where I'm not casted. I'm just listening. Sometimes it's even a recording and I will wash the dishes. I will throw in the next load of laundry and then I can switch gears and say, okay, now it's heads down work time and I can write reviews. I can do copy, whatever needs to be done. This is the way I work and this is what works for me. I establish very clear working hours. I establish flexibility in that if I need to take my kid to a doctor during the day, this is where I am and I know what I'm supposed to be doing and all that's getting done. I even establish with my family. Now this doesn't happen often, but it did recently. If I have to work in the evening or at an off time, I let them know that it's gonna be this long and this is what I have to do. So I'm clearly communicating on both sides. My calendar rules everything, so I'm organized, but I'm also transparent. I don't have any hidden agenda on my calendar. I will say I'm at therapy right now, and I'm not going to be answering Slack from three to four. I'll be open and say I need to exercise to feel healthy, and in the mornings, I block my calendar every day for pickleball. I think those are all valid. They also empower my team to do the best they can to be happy and to thrive. And we've managed it. I work on a team globally. I talk to people in Dublin. And then I end the day with people in San Francisco. Sometimes I'm answering stuff overnight with India and it still gets done. We find the right tools and we find the right style of communication that allows for asynchronous work, meetings when necessary, and then just accountability to what we say we're going to do. That's great. I love the transparency with your family and with your employer as well. I think that's so important and just being really upfront about the needs and communication and not trying to slack while you're at dinner with your child or something like that. So I think that's really great. You shared a story where you had to make kind of a hard decision in one way, but was kind of a no-brainer in another way about a recent offsite. Do you mind sharing that about the boundary that you had to enforce when you were asked to go to an offsite recently? Yeah. So I'm based in Austin. I was asked to go to an offsite in San Francisco at the end of last year. 
as we were nailing down dates, I actually proactively let people know about the first day of school because it was one of the big dates. And that was my only conflict. It ended up being that the majority of people could go that week. So I was a little disappointed, but right away I said, hey, this is the only day I can't make. It's the first day of school. I'm very thankful because I have a really empathetic team of leaders who also practice active parenthood because a lot of my leaders are parents and they said, oh, I understand. You should definitely be there for the first day of school. And so making that decision, it gave me a lot of FOMO. Like I definitely was sad to miss out on seeing people I've never met before since we were in a remote environment and it was our first offsite together. But I felt supported in my decision. I think even the better outcome of this meeting is that I was not the only one, not the only person, not the only mother who had other conflicts in life and had to be remote. One person in Canada, myself, one person, I think Philly or Denver. And so we ended up asking for an advocate in the room to be our like remote friendly advocate. And we ended up creating these checklists and norms for how to have an effective hybrid on-site, meaning things like when you're talking and there's no microphone and we can't hear you or the video is off of the whiteboard and we can't focus, that's not a good experience, right? Or when you do breakout rooms and everybody's in person, we can do them on Zoom together. There's just lots of little ways. Oh, they even sent us a gift card, a DoorDash gift card, so that when they were going to dinner... We had food too. Aww. All these little thoughtful ways that made it a great experience. So even though there was that FOMO of not seeing people in person, I didn't feel left out or left behind. And I was an active voice in the offsite. What a great outcome. And I'm so happy that you stood your ground. This was your non-negotiable and it ended up setting these great parameters for the future too. I love that. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think we all have to make hard decisions and ultimately you're going to remember that first day of kindergarten. And so is your daughter. You're not going to remember the offsite. I know. <laughs> Ten <So years>. true. <laughs> I love it. Um, well, great. So now I want to get into your AMA that you recently did with ShareBird, all about customer research. So starting off, the way that we're doing this is we're highlighting some of the top questions that you answered during this. And so I wanted to just get your take on it for our audience here. So the first question is really about someone not having a voice of customer program and they write, how do you get buy-in to create this? And what does an MVP of a voice of the customer program even look like? Yeah, I have started voice of customer programs at different companies and all in different ways. So I think there's so many ways it could look like. I am a scrappy marketer. So whatever's available is what I will take advantage of. And so in my previous experience, I started off just trying to make a case on paper. I got buy-in by outlining all the ways programs like this can drive iterative product feedback, referral of new customers, retention of current customers, upsell and cross-sell of products, and just a culture of standing by the customer and taking their input and insights to develop your solutions. The second thing I've done is I ran an MVP. We had a yearly summit at Bizarre Voice where we would invite all of our top spending and high potential customers to Austin. And while we were there during lunch, I suggested setting up a roundtable, an exec and a product manager at each roundtable. And I separated them by industry and grouped a couple clients by industry. They were able to learn what's top of mind in these executives' world what's working with our product, what's not, 
And more importantly, what problems are we not solving that are top of mind for them that we should be thinking about? I thought that was a great MVP because it was low cost. It was already a function. It just required a little bit of coordination. We continued those discussions. Somebody ran with this program and ended up developing, it was the events group, regional events throughout the year that brought back that thought leadership idea to like a very VIP dinner where our executives would travel around to different areas, meet with customers in that area, bring them to the table, help the product team get buy-in on new ideas or get feedback on things they were thinking of, and just being accountable and listening and testing these new ideas. So there's a ton of ways you can do it and find routes where you're already talking to customers or have them in front of you and bring the product folks to the table. It's just making the connection. I love it. Yeah. How do you use your scrappy mentality and plug into what's already existing and kind of roll up a program? You don't have to have the 100K budget to do so. So nope. that's great advice. What about personas? How do you go about creating them? And do you have personas? Oh, this is interesting for the business at large versus personas just for launches. I'd actually never thought about that. And then how often are you kind of refreshing these? I have thoughts on this too. I'm deep in a personas project right now. Yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts. I'll take a stab at it and then pass it over to hear what you have to add. Indeed, we segment our employers by t-shirt size. So we have a ton of small businesses. We have some mid-sized companies and then enterprises. We also look at specific industries and verticals that make up the bulk of our users and who we're serving. We also do this on the job seeker side. So we very much have this B2C approach. We create personas for each of those areas. We tend to look at different segments, how they behave and what that persona looks like. So they're not just generic personas, but they may be the person who posts a job for the first time and is not spending versus the person who's spent with us over time and continues to retain because the way they're adopting features looks very different. Their business cases and use cases are very different. And so we look at a combination of all of those different facets. For launch, we identify personas we're targeting before we even build. So that research along the way informs the approach that we want to take to meet their needs. So I wouldn't say we update the persona, but rather we have all this supporting insight. We've done focus groups, we've done customer interviews to refresh how we think about these different personas. We refresh our personas yearly, but we'll use current customer data to understand their adoption, their spend, their monthly and quarterly retention. And we have lots of different teams that will provide this for us. So we have the voice of customer team that sits like within CS and sales. They gather stuff from the front lines directly and through survey. We have a market research team who will also survey. We have a UX team that does focus groups. So we kind of gather things from lots of different areas, but it is our market research team that owns all of this. And I would say we're stakeholders that receive the persona work. That's, Here awesome. That's great. Very cool to hear that. I think from my perspective, I've always been really hands-on with the personas. And I think that I've done it two different ways. One is starting off with from the ground up, doing a bunch of qual research with existing customers or prospects. So at one former startup, I interviewed about 30 customers and it was pretty scrappy. I gave everyone like a $25 Starbucks gift certificate or something that I interviewed. But through those interviews, I was able to start to develop some patterns around 
what we were seeing and it helped us find unique ways to actually differentiate the personas and kind of build from there. And then we backed it up with quant research and with our existing customer data that we had to define them. I've also done it from a quant perspective where we work with our research team or an outside research firm and we're surveying people in different markets to understand their motivations, the features they'd want to be using. And then you can kind of use that to either use like a cluster analysis approach or really kind of dissect and look at the differences of what you're seeing in the data to develop it and then back it up with qual research. So I've done it both ways. I don't know if I have a preference, but I think either way, if you're not owning it specifically, I just recommend getting really close to the data and reading through those qual interviews, reading through the surveys, being able to speak to it because whether or not you produced it, you're the person that's going to have to be the translator of it and the person that's the advocate of those customers. So being able to kind of really push those out. And yeah, similar to you, we don't make new launch personas. We just make sure that we are highlighting who our personas are, that we're focusing on for different features or product releases and making sure that it connects the dots there. So similar processes there. So yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's fun to see how different people are doing it. All right, now let's move on to our last question from the AMAs, which is how do you build effective buyer journeys? Do you have any tips or insights on how to effectively map this? Yes, this is a good question. And there was a little bit more behind this around finding subject content format channels that work better at what stage of the journey, et cetera. So I actually think this person was so smart and squeezed three topics into one, which are all interrelated and important to buyer journey maps. In my experience, I start first with segmenting my audience, understanding the total addressable market by country, company, vertical, industry, et cetera. Finding personas within my target audience, who's the buyer, who's the user, mapping journeys for each persona, and then testing which content or channels work best for each one. So this means if I'm selling to enterprises versus mid-sized companies or an IT buyer versus a finance buyer, I should understand the different journeys, budgets, and decision-making processes they have and plan my content accordingly based on where they are. So be really choosy about where to focus. I would start and test content starting from the top of the funnel. So awareness, paid ads, SEO, partnerships, brand campaigns, podcasts like this one, and see is your brand a consideration for your category. Then I'd move to the middle to drive consideration. So maybe web, landing pages, case studies, white papers, demos, to see if there's preference for your brand versus competitors or alternative offerings. And finally, at the bottom of the funnel, just to close the purchase, talking to sales, offering referrals, free trials, and seeing if you're the right choice to meet their needs. Content at each of these stages has a really different intent and measurement for success. So the more specifically your content can address a buyer's problem with the right level of information, the more likely you are to convert them to the next stage. And from a research perspective, a few frameworks that are helpful for me for journey maps have been jobs to be done, desk and diary studies, one-on-one -on -one interviews. That's why getting the right person from the beginning within the company is really important and meeting with as many as you can until trends become apparent. We talked earlier about being really scrappy. I once was targeting store managers as my user and I went to the mall I did cold calls and set up meetings at Starbucks with store managers, offer them to buy a cup of coffee just to learn about their day-to-day, -day, what tools they use, how do they learn, how do they stay informed. 
And that was super scrappy. We called it the mall walk, the research of mall walking. And it was incredible. So I don't think you need a ton of budget to do this. You just have to be methodical and choosy. I love that. Yeah. Some insights are better than no insights. So making sure you're able to connect on that. I think that's great. All really good tips. All right. Well, I can't believe it, but it's already time for our lightning round. So I'd love to hear about who have been your strongest PMM mentors. Okay. And indeed, I have some really strong ones. I can't name them all, but I will pick Judy Nam, who's our VP of SMB Marketing and Indeed. My manager, Greg Powell, who's our Senior Director of Product Marketing, has been wonderful. Maria Stansbury, I'll give her a shout out. She works on go-to-market at AWS. She was the first product marketer I met in my life at Bizarre Voice and helps me interview for my first job. David Shaw, who's a consultant, he's an executive and product marketer for a long time at Google, Facebook, other companies. He's really helped me develop my voice as a product marketing leader. So all wonderful, strong mentors. That's awesome. It's like a board of mentors. Yes. (laughs) Go to for anything. What has been the one thing that has been the most important in terms of growing your career? Judy gave me this advice early on before I was a people manager, and she told me, you can be a leader without a title. It's just simply in how you show up, stay curious and inspire others with your point of view. And so I remember getting that advice. And I remember walking into a really big meeting after that and just saying, I'm going to stand up and show up. I remember people looking at me and that was the moment I realized this is how I'm going to keep showing up. That was really important to me. So you can be a leader without a title. I love that. That's so important. I'm interested to hear this from you, but how do you network? Do you do it? Do you love it? Do you hate it? Tell us more. I tend to reach out to my network for connections. I am not above saying, I see you're connected to so-and-so. Please make an intro. I am a learner of the Product Marketing Alliance, and I've been to their summit in Austin, and I got connected to a lot of people there. I found the networking to be great. I'm not above a cold call, so I learned about your podcast, listening to an episode with Natalie Louie, and I cold reached out to her on LinkedIn to see if she would come talk to my team. So I'm all for it. I don't love it, not especially in the like, let's get together and meet each other every five minutes, but I am not above doing it. I think it's necessary. That's so great. And I love the full circle moment with Natalie. And now you're on the show. Yay. <laughs> Who knows what connections are going to be made from here? Oh, and absolutely. Last question for you. Why product marketing? It's just so highly cross-functional. I love that it touches every aspect of the organization and there's always something to learn. So no day is the same. That's so awesome. Well, Sherry, thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge with us today. It's been such an informative conversation one I'll really cherish personally. So thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I've loved our conversation. This show is produced by Sharebird, the knowledge sharing platform for the fastest growing teams. It's the place to get on-demand answers to your questions and learn from leaders in the top of their field. Want more advice and insights? Head to sharebird.com. 